Amen. All right. Ain't got no time for a quick, uh, for long prayers. Um, so if you guys have your Bibles, um, I want you guys to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 14, all the way to actually chapter 3 uh, to verse 4. And uh, as you're flipping there, um, if you're new here, we're so glad to have you. Um, we've been going through 1 Corinthians for the past a few months now. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes in verse 14 of chapter 2, again, all the way to chapter 3, verse 4. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. But I, brothers, cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you just, are you not being merely human? This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever been told that you just don't get it? Uh, I'm sure some of you guys are like, well, my teachers just told me that this morning. Uh, When I was in seventh grade, um, I took summer school classes at my local community college. And I don't remember how I got roped into doing this. But a classmate and I were asked by one of the college students to help him uh, load up some ice into an ice chest. And so when we got to the kitchen, he had told me to open up the ice chest and he told me to use the ice scooper to scoop ice into the ice chest rather than using, using my hands. And so I was like, okay, got it. Uh, use the scooper. And so he went to go do something else. And rather than using the ice scooper that he had told me to use, I uh, ended up using my dirty hands. And I don't know why, I don't know why I use my hands. Um, I, I was given very specific, very clear instructions to use the scooper. And it wasn't because, you know, I was just, you know, I was trying to troll him or something. Uh, but I, I, I felt like I was just like, maybe, maybe I was just like mentally challenged or something. Um, because I was scooping the ice with my hands and the, the college student came back and saw me scooping the ice with my hands. And he was like, dude, don't use your hands. Uh, use the scooper instead. And I was like, okay, cool. I got it. Use the scooper, not my hands. And then he walked away and then I resume putting ice into the ice chest with my hands. And I don't know why I kept using my hands. It was like I didn't connect the dots that maybe the ice was to be used, you know, in beverages and, and or that my hands were like freezing. Like, I, I just don't know why I just kept doing it. And anyway, he comes back and this time he's pretty disturbed, in fact, annoyed. <laughs> and he said, dude, didn't I tell you not to use your hands? You just don't get it, do you? And then he sends me back to my classroom and... Um, and so that's my little foray uh, or little story. But have you ever been told that you just don't get it, even though you thought you did? Maybe you thought that you knew how to solve this math problem only to realize that you had been doing it all wrong. But not only for that one math problem, but also for all the other ones in the math portion of the SAT. Just got real. Um, or maybe you got into an argument with, say, your wife, and she asks you the, the, dread, the, the dreaded question, um, do you even know why I'm mad? And, and, and you think you do, but you actually 
don't, uh, but you say you do because you just want to get out of the conversation. Uh, and yes, I'm speaking from real experience here. But have you ever thought that you understood or knew something, but only to find out that you really didn't? Uh, and so last week, uh, we left off with Paul in the middle of his most stinging critique of the Corinthian church so far by showing that in their pursuit of knowledge, in the pursuit of wisdom, in their pursuit of maturity even, they were proving that they were actually lacking knowledge. They were lacking wisdom and maturity. By stirring up jealousy, rivalry, and division, they were proving that they actually just don't, didn't get what wisdom or maturity were really about. It's almost as if Paul is saying, you who profess to know God, you who know you who profess to believe in Jesus, you in whom the Spirit of God dwells, you who profess to be mature and wise, you who read your Bible and go to church and pray, aren't you betraying your self-proclaimed maturity and acting in the old way of being human when you can't get along with other people? When you ignore others or talk behind people's backs, when you hang out with people on the worldly basis of status and importance, aren't we still acting out of the old way of being human and not the new? This is the sharpest critique that the Apostle Paul has leveled so far. And he poses for us again in this passage a test. The true litmus test of Christian maturity is evaluated on your relationships, not your knowledge. True spirituality is measured by your conformity to the cross, not by what you know. Again, this is by far the Apostle Paul's strongest rebuke because what he is saying is that by how you are living your life, you are not only tarnishing the message of the cross, you are also in danger of proving that Jesus never even knew you. And so tonight's message is a continuation of last week's message. Last week we saw that having the mind of Messiah means that our standards of maturity must be redefined. And in tonight's passage, the Apostle Paul wants us to see that having the mind of Messiah means that the path of maturity must be patterned after the cross. And so the first point, and actually the only point, but we all know that how that's going to turn out. Um, the first point is that having the mind of Messiah means that the path of maturity must be patterned after the cross. So take a look at verses 14 to 15. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. And so again, we pick up right where we had left off from last Friday. And I know that I didn't even talk about the mind of Messiah, really, because I just wanted to keep you guys on the edge of your seats. Just kidding, I just ran out of time. But um, I've already given enough context already. But again, for Paul, for the past two chapters... He has been addressing the problems of divisions in the Corinthian church. And just to give you guys a sense of how much time Paul had devoted to addressing these divisions, um, I saw actually an infographic of how Paul's section on divisions in the church in chapters 1 through 4 contains just as many words as 1 Thessalonians and the letter to the Colossians. The section on divisions contains just as many words as other letters of the Apostle Paul. And so in verses 14 to 16, Paul is still talking about divisions. And so again, we are in the middle of Paul talking about how there is no such thing as 
two-tiered Christianity. Paul does not divide the church between those who are mature and those who are immature. Everyone who has placed their hope and faith and trust in Jesus the Messiah are all considered mature. But in verses 14 to 15, we find that the Apostle Paul does make a division. But not with the church, but with the world. In verse 14, he says that the non-Christian is the natural person who does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. While the Christian is the spiritual person who judges all things because Christians have the Spirit of God. Now, many people have tried to use this passage to talk about how non-Christians can understand, understand the Bible better than Christians can, but simply haven't believed it or applied it to their lives. And all of that is certainly possible. But to read this passage as if it was whether someone can understand the truths of Scripture without believing it is to completely overlook the point that the Apostle Paul is trying to make. True knowledge isn't just understanding what something means. True knowledge is understanding and being transformed by it, both of which require the Spirit of God. You know, when I was, uh, when I was in high school, uh, my Catholic friend had taken me and my other friend to his youth group on Friday nights, and it was called Kairos at Lighthouse Community Church. Just kidding. Uh, but what, but what, what, struck, what, what, what struck me while we were singing uh, worship songs to Mary, just kidding. Uh, I'm, I'm being like really irreverent now. Um, but as we, were singing, as we were singing Chris Tomlin songs, I noticed that my non-Christian friend was singing the songs. The, the songs were about Jesus going to the cross and dying for people's sins. The, the worship team was playing Take My Life and Let It Be. And he was singing along. I was like, I was really surprised by that. And one thing that's interesting uh, about Catholic churches is that um, they have what's called pew kneelers, um, where you can kneel on this padded cushion uh, behind the pews in front of you. And a lot of traditional churches have them, actually. And I'll never forget what my friend said as he was singing. He said, I will sing the songs, but I will never kneel before God. And that was, that was so surprising to me. Because he could understand what, was, what he was singing, but he would not yield his life to the one that he was singing to. He, he was so close, but at the same time, the gap could not have been wider because true knowledge isn't merely knowledge that you have acquired or even information that you can acknowledge or sing. Because if my friend truly understood the words of the song, his life would have been changed. He would have known that Jesus came not for the righteous, but for the sinner, for, for him. And I think this poses as a challenge for regular church attenders like us today. You see, I think my, non, my at least my non-Christian friend was at least more honest than the Christians that who have gone to church for a long time. How many of us will mouth, even singing the words of let your kingdom come, let your will be done, and yet walk out those front doors and carry on our lives singing to the tune of let my, king, let my kingdom come and let my will be done. How many of us will jot down notes in our notebooks and diaries of sermons that we've liked and heard, but will fail to imbibe and absorb those truths into our lives? How many of us will remember, the tr- will remember truth so that we can rebuke others with it while neglecting its rebuke for our own souls? And when we do that, aren't we just acting like the natural person who does not accept the things of the Spirit of God? 
Which is why in verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Paul is quoting from Isaiah, and the, the, the answer that he expects is, is no one. No one has understood the mind of the Lord. Who can know the thoughts and mind of God? But here's what makes it so crazy. Which is what makes the last part of verse 16, on the one hand, the greatest wonder, and on the other hand, the greatest rebuke. At the end of verse 16, he says, but we have the mind of Christ. On the one hand, it is the greatest wonder because we have the mind of the Messiah. It means that you are no better than other Christians, and it also means that you are no worse than other Christians. You have no reason to look down on others for their knowledge or even lack of knowledge because they, have also, they also have the mind of Messiah. And it also means that you don't have to, be, to feel discouraged if you are not walking or running in the same pace as others because you also have the mind of Messiah. This obviously doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue growth or maturity, but the greatest wonder of all is that the thoughts of God are just as accessible and available to you as they are to me and your other pastors and the greatest of Christians, which, by the way, is an oxymoron. There's no great Christian. But on the other hand, it is also the greatest rebuke. Because we still hate on others, we still judge others, we still look down on others and exclude others, even though we have the mind of Jesus, even though those, even though those are the very things that Jesus has laid his life down for. You know, the, the, the phrase, the mind of Messiah is interesting. This phrase only occurs two other times in the New Testament, and the phrase loosely shows up in Philippians chapter 2. And I want us to turn there. Philippians chapter 2. And as you're turning there, the Philippians, unlike the Corinthians, were a model community. But even then, the Apostle Paul urges them to be united. And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, this is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here it is. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, the mind of Messiah was in no way a cerebral idea or some kind of special knowledge because in appealing to the mind of Messiah, the Apostle Paul was pointing to Jesus' way of life and how that way of life would lead him to leave his throne and how that way of life would lead him to identify with the brokenhearted, with the oppressed and the sinner. And his way of life would take him to a hill called Calvary where he would be crowned with a crown of thorns and hoisted up upon a cross between two criminals, and he would suffer the wrath of God 
for their sins and ours. We are the criminals and Jesus laid his life down for us. And that is the mind of Messiah and the measure of our maturity. It was not cerebral. It was not esoteric. It was not wise. It was not self-centered. In fact, it was foolish. It was countercultural, And it was also cross-shaped. You see, I think a lot of us think that the path of maturity is to accrue more knowledge, to memorize scripture, to know more things about God, to know exactly what to say and how to say it, to double down on truth, and to never back down from the truth. And those are all great things, but I think many of us believe that if we have done all of those things, that we, then we are on the right path to maturity. But that is not how you have learned Messiah. Knowledge and maturity was never about information, but how that information has transformed our lives. Therefore, maturity is truth lived out, not merely truth acquired. Because anyone can acquire facts from a piece of paper, but not everyone lives out those facts. And that is the deep irony for anyone who claims to be mature. To be mature is not based on how much you know, but again, on how much you love. Because love is the supreme expression of truth lived out. It's exactly why the Apostle Paul says in chapter 13 that love is the most excellent way. Why? Because even if we speak in the tongues of men and of angels, if we have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if we have all faith, if if we even give away all that we have to the poor, You can be the most gifted, you can be the most eloquent, the most dependable, the most generous, but have not love, then we are nothing. All of the knowledge that we have, all of the gifts that we possess, all of the influence that God has given to us, all of the status that we have among our peers is nothing if we do not have love. And it is through this foundation, the mind of Messiah that we move and and walk along the path of maturity. The cross of Jesus in his self-giving love is both the paradigm and the pattern of spiritual maturity. And this is what the Apostle Paul challenges us. He says, if you think you know, then you really don't. Because if we are to be mature, our lives must be patterned after the cross. Maturity must come through the cross. Now, what does a maturity that is in the shape of a cross look like? Well, if you remember from a few weeks ago, the the word cruciform means in the shape of a cross. And so I want to point out three implications of a cruciform maturity. The first implication is that a cruciform maturity means that our maturity must be open to correction and examination. It must be open to correction and and examination. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 3, back in 1 Corinthians. Sorry, I think you guys are still, are you guys still in Philippians? Okay, we're back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, and he says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I mean, this is just, this is just embarrassing now. The word for infants here refer to babies who still need to be breastfed by their mothers. How many of you guys are receiving breastfeeding from your moms? Hopefully none of you guys are. 
That's how, that's, how, that's how embarrassing it is. And he says that he cannot address you as spiritual people. Take a look at verse 2. I, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready. Now here's what's really interesting to me. If you'll remember from our first sermon in 1 Corinthians, I had mentioned that the Apostle Paul had birthed the Corinthian church. So in a real metaphorical way, Paul was like their mother. But after starting the church in Corinth and staying there for a year and a half, he goes on to other regions and he plants other churches. And about a year or two after, Paul receives his first letter from the Corinthians. And it's when the Corinthian church is in its fifth year as a church that Paul writes 1 Corinthians. Now, what's the point? Paul writes to the Corinthians roughly five years after they planted. You would expect that having been discipled and planted by the Apostle Paul, that there would be no problems and divisions, and that after five years of Christian experience, you're, you're well on your way to being a model Christian community. But it turns out that the, 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 the Corinthian church is actually one of the few churches that Paul had planted that had the most problems. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means that you can be a Christian for three months or even 10 years and still act like a non-Christian. That's what it means to be an infant. Now, just to remind you guys again, Paul isn't suggesting different classes of spiritual maturity as if they're like, you know, white belt Christians or purple belt Christians. There are, again, obviously degrees of spiritual maturity, but that is not the the Apostle Paul's concern here. He is merely pointing out the inconsistency of someone who has the mind of Messiah but is not living like it. Someone who can talk the talk, but can't walk the walk. You can't bank on how long you've been a Christian or how long you've been going to church as the sign of your maturity. You can't bank on your parents as a sign of your maturity. You can't bank on the people who have discipled you as the sign of your maturity. Some of you have been Christians for a long time. Maybe you grew up in church, in this church. And yet you're acting in a completely natural and human way. And it is here that the Apostle Paul is calling you to wake up to be who you really are. And at the same time, for those who tend to over-antagonize the Corinthians, take note that the Apostle Paul doesn't flat out say that they're non-Christians. He says that even though they are infants, even though they still are acting like non-Christians, they are still in the Messiah. They're still in Christ. They still have the Spirit, and the Spirit has given them gifts and abilities for the flourishing of the church. They still meet together for worship. And he also does not say that they are are unspiritual, only that they are acting unspiritual. In fact, in the beginning of verse 1, he still extends the hand of fellowship by calling them brothers. Now, what does this, what does this all mean? This means that we should never immediately jump to the conclusion that professing believers are not Christians just because they don't act like it. To do so is to ignore the fact that every Christian has inconsistencies in how they live their lives. Which is why I I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, Those who do not think about their own sins make up for it by incessantly thinking about the sins of others. Which is why Paul, for Paul, it's important to point out what he is calling the Christians to do, the Corinthians to do, rather. The fact that Paul is saying that they are acting like non-Christians implies that it is entirely possible for them to be non-Christians, 
which is why Paul is implicitly calling them to genuinely examine themselves. After Paul again writes to the Corinthians a fourth time in 2 Corinthians, Paul finally calls the Corinthians to examine themselves to see whether they are in the faith. And what this means is that a cruciform maturity means that we will place ourselves at the foot of the cross and evaluate ourselves there and even allow others to take us to the cross. He's not calling them to examine the sins of others, but themselves. Therefore, we don't assess our maturity based on how we compare with others because comparing our maturity to others is like chasing the wind. There will always be someone who is worse than you and there will always be someone who is better than you. But we assess our standing before God at the foot of the cross. Sorry to make it all intense, but because I love you, do you care about your spiritual state before God? Do you care about your spiritual state before God? When was the last time that you spent time in honest confession to God, aside from when we take communion together? When was the last time you came up with intentional steps to turn from your sins? But more importantly, when was the last time you spent gazing and pondering the atoning death of Jesus on the cross for you? Is it possible for us to know and yet not really know? Is it possible for the gospel of Jesus, which we hear so often, to go in one ear and out the other? But on the other hand, I also want to warn you how we can make examination, self-examination, all about us and not about God at all. You know, when I was in, uh, when I was in college, I, I, I seriously spent every other day questioning my salvation, testing to see if I, if I was a Christian or not. And what I had realized was that every time I looked in myself, I had only despaired more and more. But when I looked to Jesus, the one who has the words of eternal life, the author and perfecter of my faith, I had stopped. Jesus is our assurance, not ourselves. And what this means is that doubt is not the enemy of faith. Doubt is not. But refusing to look at Jesus is. That is the enemy of faith. One of my favorite quotes of all time is from the, uh, the Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane. And he said, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. How often are you turning your gaze to Jesus? For the Apostle Paul, his life was hidden in Messiah. May we say the same. Secondly, the second implication is that a cruciform maturity means that our maturity must always be reforming. I mentioned last week that a large cause for the divisions in the Corinthian church was because the Corinthians' standard of maturity was judged purely based on how much they knew and how much information that they had acquired. It was a maturity defined by the arrival of intellect, not heart transformation. And I think this is especially relevant for a church and a youth group even like ours, is it not? Even though we preach to the heart and not just to the mind, is it possible for us to still feel like we have intellectually arrived? Some of us believe that we have arrived because we go to Lighthouse Community Church and we now know, we now know what our idols are 
And somehow that makes us an authority on what makes other people tick. Some of us think that we have arrived because we know certain truths or applications from the Bible or what the gospel says about X, Y, and Z. Most of us are simply too content with new information and are not willing to put in the work of letting that information transform our lives. The phrase always reforming is actually the English translation of the Latin phrase semper reformanda. It refers to this idea that the church must always continually be re-examining itself through the unchanging truth of scripture because not even the godliest Christians have arrived. The message of the cross will never change. The truths of scripture are unchangeable because God and his promises are unchangeable. And it can be communicated in fresh or interesting ways, but the substance of the truth is the same. Therefore, what needs to change isn't the message. It's the listener. What needs to reform isn't the old, old truth, but our rebellious hearts. The the problem isn't familiarity. The problem is unbelief. The moment that we begin to have the impression that we haven't learned anything at church on Sundays or on Fridays or even in our devotions means that we have stood over God and his word rather than let God and his word stand over us. And if our posture toward messages, sermons, Christian truth, if that, if our posture is to stand over it rather than to submit under it, we have not truly understood it and we are truly not, we're truly not mature. What should our posture be then? Our posture must always be a posture of humility. Humility is being thankful to God for how you have come, for how far you have come, while also recognizing your room for growth. A posture of humility also means that our feelings are not first. The feeling that we aren't learning is almost never a reliable indicator because it usually grows out of a failure to appreciate the kinds of truths that we are hearing. In fact, to believe that all meaningful learning must be mind-blowing or even stimulating will only set you up for a path for failure later. A posture of humility means that, we believe, that what we believe about learning must change. Learning isn't just getting a bunch of new facts to trip out on but transformation. It's finding things in a message that can still challenge you and provoke you to change. That's when knowledge becomes personal. But one of, you know, one of the, one of the un- unappreciated and often neglected lessons of sitting attentively through sermons is how even the act of sitting attentively shapes our hearts. I don't know if you guys have recognized this, but can I, can, can I confess to you how difficult it is for me to resist the urge to open my phone while listening to a message. I know you guys are like, oh, pastor. I'm with you all, okay? And I feel like as I get older, my attention span weakens and not strengthens. But the fact that we come together to sing, the fact that we, the, the way that we sit, the way that we receive God's word, the way we sit through yours truly, talking for 35 minutes, rather than going on our phones or zoning out or doodling on our notes, trains our hearts to resist our natural urges to do otherwise. I don't know if you guys noticed that. But sitting attentively even trains our hearts. The third implication, the third implication of a cruciform maturity means that our maturity must exist for others. 
our maturity must exist for others. Take a look finally at the first half of verse 3. For you are still of the flesh. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of the flesh or behaving in a, in a human way. Maybe you think of those who are sexually promiscuous, uh, the worldly, the materialistic, the person who sits in the back row at church and not the front row like Seth here, the person who shows up at church 30 minutes later. Now, it's not that none of those are true, but it's interesting to note who specifically the Apostle Paul has in mind when he talks about the fleshly and the humanly. Take a look at the last half of verse 3 and 4. For you are still of the flesh. Why? For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? You know, the word for jealousy here is actually a little misleading in the English because the word for jealousy in the Greek is the word zealos, which is the word we get for zeal. It's the same word that the Apostle Paul uses to describe his religious zeal as a Pharisee. The word is often used to describe a religious passion that often leads to arrogance and strife. How many people do you know who are passionate about the truth and nothing but the truth? They love their Bibles. They love talking about theology, but they are jerks. They are annoying to be around and they are argumentative. Do you know people like that? Have you ever met people who are supposedly really godly but have conflict with their family? Have you ever met people who are supposed to be mature but hold on to the most bitterness and grudges? The problem wasn't that they loved their Bibles or talked about theology, but that they had failed to use their knowledge and self-proclaimed maturity to unite, even despite the differences. What they knew didn't match up with what they had lived. What led to all of this jealousy, quarreling, and strife? It was how the Corinthians used their maturity. It was how the Corinthians had used their maturity. How do you use your maturity? Do you use it as a weapon? Do you use it as a means to an end? If you've been a Christian for uh, long enough, I think it's fair to say that you probably all know how to play the game. And you know exactly what types of buttons to press and exactly what types of things to do to tip the balance in your favor. We use spiritual maturity as a currency to win the approval and favor of others. You see, for every Christian, there is always the danger of using spiritual maturity as a means for your own personal ends. To use spiritual maturity as a way to manipulate how others view you rather than having maturity as the outworking of your walk with God. Here's just a rule of thumb. If you think that you can get people to like you because you are godly, Guess what? You're not mature or godly. One of the problems that we see in the Corinthians is that they saw their maturity as a way to get ahead of others. And we are just as susceptible to this danger because we make maturity no longer about our personal integrity before God, but we make maturity all about us and how we can get the attention of other people. Is it possible to to make spiritual maturity into a show that we perform for others? Is it possible to use spiritual maturity to leverage our status in the church? 
If godliness and spiritual maturity is the name of the game, then we will have bigger John MacArthur study Bibles than John MacArthur's own Bible. Maybe it's not Bibles, but our kindness. How can we position and phrase compliments in such a way that it puts still the attention on us rather than the other person? How can I say things in such a way that people will think that I'm a nice person? What about our theological knowledge? In our conversations with people, are we silently judging others for what they say or don't say? Or silently correcting others even? Pastor Wayne had um, shared this story about, it's, it's actually really funny. Uh, he had shared this a while ago and uh, he was talking about this time when he was preaching uh, at one of the co- campus fellowships at UCLA. And I won't mention what fellowship it was, but at UCLA, uh, at WCF, when he had uh, finished preaching, the MC who had introduced him gave a concluding address. And Wayne had realized that in his concluding address, the MC was pointing out and correcting all the ways that he had wished Wayne would, would have said in his message. And that MC was me. Just kidding, just kidding. It wasn't me, it wasn't me okay? It wasn't me. That's whack, okay? Not that whack. Um, for Paul, the, the fleshly, the, the, the worldly, the humanly are the people who sit in the front row. Sorry, Seth. It's the people who are ungracious and are mean even though they are perceived to be mature by others. It's the people who follow this person or that person. It's the people who are absolutely mesmerized by popularity, prestige, and status. And when we do that, Paul says, are you not merely being human? Aren't we acting just like the world around us? Aren't we acting just like our non-Christian friends and our non-Christian classmates? Should your life be different from the average person walking the streets of Torrance? Yes or no? Yes. We must love our city and the people in our city, but I hope that we live differently than the people of our city. What supposedly mature people fail to realize is that spiritual maturity is not an end in itself. To grow as a Christian And to mature as a Christian is never done for the sake of stoking our own egos or making us look better than others. Spiritual maturity is not an end in itself, but a gift that we give to other people. Spiritual maturity is not an end in itself, but a gift that we give to others. How many of you are the oldest of your siblings? Just raise, raise your hands. Oldest, okay. How many of you guys are uh, the youngest of your siblings? Okay, great. To the older, you have the spiritual obligation of taking care of the younger. Your position as the older brother or sister is never meant to be a place of privilege, but a place of responsibility. A A cruciform maturity is a maturity that looks out to the mature, not as a way to look down on them, but to lead them to the foot of the cross. Because that is where true maturity lies. And what I also want you to consider is how this high school group, how this high school group does not function as its own. Despite the fact that the junior high and high school groups do things almost separately, the youth group is still a family. And as a family, as the older siblings in the high school group, you have a spiritual responsibility to those who are younger to help them grow, to help them mature. To the staff, 
as older brothers, spiritual brothers and sisters, you were to help this high school group grow. Spiritual maturity, what you know, is not in, in, in itself, is not an end in itself, but a gift for others. That is the mind of Messiah. Having the mind of Messiah means that the path of maturity must be patterned after the cross. So I want us to close by actually having us read Philippians chapter 2 again. I want you guys to turn there. And I really want you guys to consider the truths in that in those 10, 11 verses. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Oops, sorry, lost my, lost my place. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, apart from your Spirit, we would be left in our natural state, alienated from you, deprived of the life of God. And yet, we thank you that in your Son, we have not only been given life through his death and in his resurrection, we've also been given his Spirit, who enables us to be the kind of people that you have called us to be, a people for your own possession, a people called out of darkness and into marvelous light to proclaim the excellencies of your glory to a dying world. And so, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray that for them, that they would really consider their own spiritual state, that they would consider that their maturity is not an end in itself, but really a gift for others. It is not to stoke our own egos. It is not to build ourselves up, but to use maturity in such a way that it actually magnifies your work in the lives of your people. And so, Father, that is our hearts, that is my heart's desire for this group here. That we would be a people who are truly mature, who are not infants, but mature. And so, Father, we thank you. We love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. You guys are dismissed.